0: parenting is hard few of us feel up to the task the world is shifting quickly and dramatically all of us feel the changes affecting our families the stress and pressure can be intense we are here to help sort the good and the bad provide insight and bring hope welcome to brilliantly brave parenting we're so glad you stopped by
1: hi and welcome to brilliantly brave parenting season five And uh, I'm Pastor Brad Matthias. I am here with my co-host and criminal friend, Robert (laughs) Beeson. How do you even get that? Where does that come from? You know, I've been around you enough to know that you've done things that... (laughs) Right. I actually was arrested by mistake once. I mean, this is a complete side diversion. By mistake. I think I saw this in Bull on TV. No, I actually, in my neighborhood,
2: I went to Starbucks. I'm like, this quick, on a Saturday morning to get Starbucks. And I got pulled over on the way back in, in our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And it was a sheriff's office and he was training a parole par- or a, right. a, a rookie. Not kidding. Training, yeah. So he pulls me over. He's like, I'm sorry, your registrations. I'm like, no, it's it's done or whatever. He goes, oh, I'm sorry. There's no record of it. You're going to have to like, I'm going to have to take you in. And literally Saturday morning, so all the, the, the neighbors are driving Did in and out. you handcuffed? <clears throat> yes. I got handcuffed and put in the back of the cop car in front pictures? of all my neighbors. I don't know. And I got taken i could he, i'm like can i drive my car like oh my literally 15 feet and park it in the I knew it. parking lot i knew you were a criminal and he's like no i'm sorry we have to because he was the point is he was training this this is no exception there's no whatever mm-hmm. so i was humiliated in front of my entire neighborhood and it turns out it was their mistake because it had been filed and i knew it had been filed but i got booked fingerprinted the whole
1: nine put in a cell
2: <laughs> Orange jumpsuit? I digress. No. <clears throat> so it's good to be here, and uh, oh, thank you man. for bringing up th- The
1: personal things that people get to know about these co-hosts is amazing. So speaking of personal, we've been doing this thing in the
2: last few podcasts where we ask a random question um, to our co-hosts. And so I've got the honor of, um, it's Brad, you turn. choose yeah. a number, and then I'll give you the question associated with it. So one uh, between 1 and 25.
1: How about 17?
2: 17. Oh, that's a good one.
1: Is it? I think so. Then I don't want it.
2: No, it's not. Choose another one. All right, 18. Um, Okay, this is a good one. Have you had your 15 minutes of fame yet?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. 15 minutes of fame. Have I had 15 minutes of fame? I guess maybe I did. Uh, You know, 2014, a book came out with Tyndale, Mm -hmm. uh, Road Trip to Redemption. And I went on the media junket, you know, did the, like, 12 TV interviews and 39 radio interviews and all over the United Got States. all made up pretty for television. Oh, man. <clears throat> There's nothing quite as uncomfortable as full-on makeup. Yeah. Yeah. In Canada, they love putting makeup on them. Yeah. I mean, I, I know you've written a book and you've had the same experience. So I guess I did. I had the 15 minutes where the cameras were on me. And mm. uh, honest to goodness, not a fan. <laughs> that, that was not a good time for me. I get it. I totally get it. Well, today we have a, a very, a very special guest today and really some topic that I think parents and, uh, and families are going to have to start to wrestle with more and more. Hmm, unfortunately, um, Culturally speaking, we're beginning to see issues of sexual abuse in the church as a, a more common and definitely more um, discussed topic. I'm sure it's been around longer than we know. But it's definitely becoming more and more um, talked about. Exposed. Yeah, the Me Too movement, uh, some of the other forces in our culture are beginning to sort of uh, create permission, I guess, even uh, within the church to start to talk about and admit and, and deal with some of these struggles. And today's guest is an author, Nanette Kirsch. And she's written a book called Denial, uh, and it's a book about abuse, addiction, and a life derailed. Welcome to Brilliantly Brave Parenting, Nanette.
3: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
1: We, you know, when we were asked uh, if we would be willing to have you on this podcast, you know, one of the things that immediately went into my mind as a pastor is, yes, I really think this is time to discuss. And I think there are literally— tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of women in particular who have been hurt or affected by abuse within the church and have never been able to talk about it. Is that true? Is that something you've discovered in your research?
3: It is. I think um, I would amend your statement by saying men and women in the church. Um, In the Catholic church crisis, it's 85% males who have been targeted. And then another denominational— Traditions—it's definitely primarily women, but it is not a female issue, and um, it is not talked about. So, one of the premises in my book, and the reason that the title is "Denial," is that the cost of not talking about it is uh, significant, and I think compounds the suffering and makes it impossible for people to move past that trauma and get on with their lives.
2: Mm. What, because um, I mean, we could we could try to try to lay out how you got to to writing this book, but I think just hearing from you, what what inspired you? That's such the wrong word, but what led to mm-hmm. you wanting to to write this book and to to bring out into light things that are so often kept in the darkness?
3: So I do think it was inspiration. I think it was Holy Spirit inspiration. Um in two thousand and nine, uh, my book is a fictional story based on a good friend of ours and his story. And um he outwardly was one of the most successful people that we knew. Um, you know, started a business, was a millionaire by thirty five, was married with five children, just outwardly had an incredibly successful life. And it was not until he died that we learned that he had been abused and that the impacts of that abuse had actually contributed to Um, his demise, his life becoming derailed, and eventually to his suicide. And um, I myself was a sexual abuse survivor, and by comparison, really didn't feel like I had had a lot of impact, so that was a point of curiosity to me. Um, As I started to deal, though, with some of the long-term impacts in my own life, I got an understanding in that process because I went through Christian counseling, and really what God showed me was that... um, the main cost of sexual abuse is that it breaks our ability to experience intimacy mm-hmm. in our human love relationships, but then also with God, if we can't experience it there, we can't experience it with him. And that was the learning that I brought back to his story to say what happened and why was that so broken for him? Having experienced um, God's healing in that in my own life as a result of the counseling and that journey.
1: Interesting. Yeah. As you're talking and I'm, you know, I'm a pastor of a a small church in Middle Tennessee, um, maybe 50, 60 people if everybody were to show up. I mean, it's a church plant. And in that small of a population sample, there are five or six um, ladies, married women, moms, who are struggling with the devastating sort of effect that sexual abuse has had on them and several of them experienced it by pastors or youth pastors uh in their life is that am i experiencing just a strange trend or is that the way it is everywhere
3: um that's a big question so i think the data is that one in four women and one in six men will be sexually abused by the time they're 18 abuse happens a lot closer to home and that's reported, right? So, you know, it could even be low. Um, it happens closer to home than any of us like to think. So I think most prolific is within families. And then I think churches are probably the next, um, place where that happens because you think you're safe. Um, the adults in in leadership there, the adults with power are given access and respect that they don't necessarily earn. Um, And so, people with the wrong intention have a lot of opportunity. And then organizationally, I think both in families and churches, there's an inclination to protect the institution over the individual. Mm -hmm. So, don't ruin the family by bringing these allegations. Don't destroy the church. Let's see if we can't, you know, deal with it quietly and it doesn't work.
1: Mm. Yeah, I, man, that grieves my heart to hear that, but Mm -hmm. I I can't live in denial, you know, uh, as I've uh, been drawn into some of these stories as a pastor and i 've learned some of the history of of men and women that that I know personally um, it it is a shock at first to think about it, but then to realize that this has been hidden for so long, I think the Catholic Church has definitely taken a lot of attention uh, there's yeah. there 's a lot of of sort of media exposure of that, and that that 's become Sort of a a scar or a wound on that particular portion of the body of Christ. But in the evangelical world, it's still coming out. Like it hasn't, there hasn't been that full exposure yet. Is that what you've Mm -hmm. experienced in your?
3: Yes, I I grew up Catholic, so my perspective and knowledge has really been in that denomination. But as I've been doing this work and really embracing this issue as ministry, I've definitely come in contact with and worked with a lot of people from a lot of different denominations. And another one um, that's a very large denomination that has a significant influence issue is the uh, southern baptist convention um there are some issues there in terms of the structure the complementarism and things that maybe biblically aren't inherently wrong but get twisted and used by people who have the wrong intentions and so um you know i've met people who did the um for such a time as this rally at the convention last year and are just advocating to create understanding, create communication and try to restore those to be safe environments. You know, people are fallen. So I don't think any one of those denominations is inherently evil. I just think that um, this is, this is a great spiritual battleground. Um, Sexual abuse is a really effective way to separate people from relationship with God. And so we really shouldn't be surprised that it's showing up in our churches.
1: You know, I I think that's so true. And I, as I've thought about it and sort of observed uh, just the few cases that I've been exposed to, it's, it's clear that there are environments that have been established as just normal within a church mm-hmm. that you probably wouldn't accept in a school or in another um, sort of public experience. Is there a, a movement Or is there a set of standards that could be adopted by churches to help prevent this?
3: So there is an organization called Grace um, that is specifically designed. Grace.org is actually their site. They're designed to help churches and organizations ensure that they've got safe environments, have policies in place. Um, A lot of it to me, as I learned about it a little bit, feels familiar in terms of the kind of controls we put in in place for finance, right? You don't let one person count the money by themselves. You don't let one person alone with a child, you don't give them access and create opportunity where someone with the wrong intentions could take advantage. It's it's a lot of common sense, but there's no reason for a church today to build that from the ground up. There is a lot of practical um, information available.
2: What about as a, as a parent that is seeing this being widespread and, and, and just feeling like there are there are so many times that we are not in proximity with our kids like what what are some ways that we can help yeah. protect our kids from this happening not just as an institution but as parents what can we do
3: as parents and i think parents are the biggest protector for the kids and um <clears throat> there's sort of the obvious things that you know i heard when my kids were little my youngest is now 16 and my oldest is 22 so it's a little different but um when they were little i heard things about you know, teaching them appropriate terms and trying to make it safe for them to come forward. I think it goes deeper than that. As I've learned about the issue, in terms of preparing your children, I really think there's two things that add to that that make a difference. One is creating an environment where it's safe in your home to talk about uncomfortable things, Mm. and you've got to model that with your kids. You've got to be willing to be open and have uncomfortable conversations and show them that that's okay and it's safe. Another that I tried to do with my kids was I tried to empower them very early on to have a voice in babysitters, in other people. So if they didn't want to hug somebody, I never told them they had to hug them. If they didn't like a babysitter, they didn't come back. And they, you know, we kind of joked that they became like the Siskel and Eber of sitters, (laughs) but trust their voice. And because I did, they learned to. And so when they came home and they told me that they weren't comfortable with things their PE teacher was asking them to do, I wasn't comfortable either. And I said, don't do it. But see, what's interesting to me is I then took that to the school and said to the principal, you know, these things don't sit right with me. And this is a school environment that has all the right policies that makes you go through training to even drive carpool. And he folded his arms and looked at me and said, really? Hmm. And I my kids no longer went to that school. I, I, you know, I, I didn't react to that one specific incident, but I saw the pattern and I wasn't comfortable. So I think it's also incumbent on us as parents to be really well-informed about what's happening in those environments and to not be afraid to ask those uncomfortable questions because you feel like, gosh, I don't want to make an allegation against somebody. You don't have to, but you've got to ask the questions, and it is uncomfortable. And, and that's, you know, the parents who abusers know are present with their kids whose parents are hawkish, and not helicopter, but hawkish. They know they're well-cared for. They know the parents are paying attention. Those aren't the kids that get targeted.
2: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I I I was wondering, you know, as someone that might be listening that has gone through sexual abuse, um, and the the separation of you know, there's you kind of create split personalities in a sense, not not clinically, but um, how do you begin the process of restoring intimacy or understanding intimacy? I know you've you've really dived into that, you you've taken a, a good look at that in your book, and even you talked about that, you know in your Mm -hmm. story. So what would you tell a listener out there that that may not have told many people, if anybody, that they have been abused? Obviously, first step is do start talking about it to somebody. But what are some other steps that that we can employ to regain intimacy?
3: I think I can share just based on my own experience that um, I did tell a handful of friends. I never told my parents And I I think parents need to realize that, too, that they're probably not going to be the first person their kids come to because, you know, the guilt that's associated with it. And you buy into a handful of lies about yourself that you're somehow responsible or that you'll be in trouble. Um, But as a young person, I was abused at 15 and in high school years. And so I did confide in a couple of friends in high school and a few other people. I truly I was in denial myself. Didn't think there was any lingering impact to my life. I can see it looking back. But I put it in a box, and I went on with my life, and I really didn't feel traumatized. Um, so I think the first thing was to realize that nobody gets out of an experience like that unscathed. Um, so I had taken it out of the little box I put it in a couple times throughout my life and um, examined whether or not it was impacting me. I always decided it wasn't, and it really was um, through my husband. He, he at one point, um, approached me, and he said, I think it is impacting you. I think you need to go find out what God has to say about intimacy and it's getting worse, not better. And I, you know, I really want that to be different. So I was really blessed in that regard. I took his words seriously and um, was able to find a Christian counselor who walked me through that, who walked me through um, first intimacy and the role that God intended that to be in a married relationship. And um, secondly, understanding my worth and that I was worthy and that that worthy was defined in God's eyes, not in the eyes of man.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's good. You know, as a pastor, I've seen uh, marriages just implode um, where one of the spouses had a, uh, you know, sexual abuse history um, and could not sort of bear to deal with it. Just wouldn't go see a counselor, wouldn't talk about it, wouldn't sort of unpack what had happened to them. And we're talking a couple decades later with three kids and 20 years of marriage under their belt. And I watched mm-hmm. that marriage just disintegrate right in front of my eyes as a pastor. It felt so helpless because here this this beautiful thing called a family was being destroyed almost like a time-delayed bomb. It, how do How do we help people like that? How do we motivate them, I guess, to do something, uh, to to unravel the pain that's hidden inside.
3: It's a really brilliant observation because um, so many times it comes later in life. And that's one of the challenges on the legal side that people are advocating that statute of limitations may give you seven years or 10 years, but people often don't start to recognize the impact till they're in their 40s, mm-hmm. 50s. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think the, um, friend who I based my book on is a good example of what you're talking about, where it was not until the year before he died that he started to make the connection between the way it was impacting his life and the fact that this is actually related. So again, because once the abuser is removed, intimacy becomes your enemy in the case of male victims. A lot of times that manifests in terms of sexual addictions, pornography addictions, Um, substance abuse and things like that. So I think it takes, in my opinion, I think women play an important role in the lives of men because they just don't have the support networks that women do. We can tell our girlfriends and have some understanding and it's a much more anticipated experience as a woman than it is as a man. And so there's some compounding of shame. So I really, one of the Groups I've really tried to speak to as I've shared the story of my book is the wives and the women who love men who may have been abused, that there are some very predictable ways that that manifests when it's really creating an issue. And that I think they can be a catalyst to confront their husbands in love, just like my husband confronted me in love, and encourage them and lead them to help as a partner. But at the end of the day, I I agree with you, if someone's unwilling to face that and walk through that, because there's only one way and it's through it, um, I, I think it's very hard to overcome and very hard for a marriage to withstand and very hard for a person to survive.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, this idea of intimacy and, you know, the, it is a necessity for a relationship to survive. Um, I think when we think, you know, when we say the word intimacy, a lot of times in our culture, it's sort of sexually charged as, you know, intimacy is actual physical relationship. But that's not really what you're talking about, I don't think. I think what you're referring to is this fact that we are closed off and there's a, there's a part of us that cannot bear to be seen or to be uh, exposed. It, let's go a little deeper into that. What, what would the symptoms be in a marriage or a relationship where one partner is just feeling uh, really frustrated and maybe confused. What what are the symptoms mm-hmm. that are showing up in someone's life where this may have been in their past?
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I think you're right. I think the intimacy piece is much deeper. And you have to remember how it happens first, right? That it's a child. If you think about when you were a child, how trusting you were of adults, that they were people who were safe and who could safely show you affection, you have no framework for affection not being a safe thing. Mm. And so once that's broken and violated in such a profound way, when you have no tools to deal with it, you carry that over as an adult. So, you know, in my case, anything intimate, being trusting, like I was a control freak. I had to be in charge. And anytime time I wasn't, I didn't feel safe because I didn't trust my husband with my heart. And so it starts there and then extends to, yeah, um, it does extend to physical intimacy that, um, you know, that feels unsafe, that safe touch, hugs and handholding and stuff like that. Um, that's really how it showed up for me. And the way I started to get help was I found some articles that were written about sexual anorexia. And I think it's a really good parallel is it's the same experience. What you need most, you're fearful of and you deny yourself until it's extremely costly. Um, And on the male side, it can be like that, or it can be, you know, some of the things I mentioned before in my friend's case, it was pornography addiction to the point where it was disabling him at work, substance abuse, drug abuse, deep homophobia, because he had been abused by a man and he was so afraid that that meant something about his sexuality, Mm. Um, very difficult time with certain types of touch, like around his neck, because that had been part of his abuse. He didn't even make that connection. He didn't understand that that was part of it. Um, so any one of those can operate independently, but I think when you start to see some of those factors coalesce in your partner, that those, that's probably a reasonable thing to explore if that might be part of the story. I
2: know that to get into this, you really probably need to dive deep into the book, but, um, I read that the, in writing the book, this, this man's wife brought you a bunch of notes and, and that, and, and wanted you to, to write this book, um, did the wife, you know, without being a spoiler here, um, did did she notice some of these issues and just not address them, or did only after the fact did she realize that, holy cow, there were there are warning signs all along, and um, and if if she did realize it, I think that's kind of what we're talking about here is things that to look for, and um, I think it's very powerful that you that you're talking about it from a man's perspective because I agree, men don't talk about this kind of thing, and and for, for all the reasons that you mentioned. So give us a little backstory onto the book and the wife and what she encountered. And obviously it didn't end well at all, but, um, did she have any idea that it was as deep as, as it was?
3: She really didn't. Um, she knew there was something devastatingly wrong from a very early stage. Um, I would say after their third child, coincidentally, I guess, similar to your friend, um, Her husband started to withdraw from the marriage and be gone a lot more. So she's home raising kids. They're in a new community. And she started to get suspicious about infidelity and what was, you know, taking him away from their family to the point where eventually she hired a private investigator. She did find out that he was soliciting prostitutes and she kept that information secret for a year. She held it inside so You know, one of the themes of my book is just the cost of secrets, the weight of those secrets. It took her under, it cost her, you know, her husband, obviously the opportunity to come clean. Um, When she finally did confront him with that, and it was indisputable. He just could not get around it. Um, He denied it. And to me, that was one of the key moments where had he at that point really come clean, I think he might have survived. Before he died, um, he did, as I mentioned, start to put some of those pieces together, and he did share with her that he had been abused. So she did know that he had been abused, but she had no idea the extent nor how all these pieces fit together until afterwards. So, you know, to be fair, if you put yourself in her shoes, you're raising five children you're scared to death about what's happening in your marriage and your husband and why you're not lovable. And her focus was much more, what do I need to change? What, why am I not lovable instead of thinking there's something wrong? And Mm so, you know, it's a challenge.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of different behavior patterns could lead to that sort of similar secrecy. Well, I mean, I can tell this is a very deep and, and, long discussion that we could have. And I, I know we only have time to scratch the surface. So in in closing, maybe just as a, a final thought, I, I was going to just remind our listeners that if you've had uh, an experience like this, if you've had sexual abuse and you've never told anyone, you've kept it inside, please, please take the risk, confide in someone, pick that person carefully, um, follow up with some of these online organizations that can guide you through a process of recovery and really wrestle with this because it's worth saving your marriage and it's worth saving you uh, from the, the the devastating long-term effects of that kind of violation. Um, is there any last advice you would give, Nanette, to the person who's right now thinking they might take this risk where do they go what do they do
3: um there are i have a website denialbook.com that has some resources i really agree with you i think the first step is to find a safe friend find somebody safe who will just hear you and share the information at least acknowledge to yourself that um it's costing you somewhere it's a blind spot you can't see it but it's costing you somewhere and then have faith that um, God can redeem it. If you would have told me five years ago that I would be sharing my story freely, comfortably, and pain-free, I would never have believed it. And I would never believe believed that God would take the worst thing that ever happened in my life and build a ministry on it. But that's how God works, and that's how good he is. And so facing that fear and entrusting God to heal you is the path to redemption and restoration.
1: Love yeah. it. That's well said. Well said. Well, thank you for taking the time to be with us today on Brilliantly Brave Parenting. We are grateful for your insights, for your courage, and for your counsel. Thank you. Well, we're very excited to announce a partnership with the guys that we know from Boise, Idaho, Robert.
2: Yes, we are. New release today. They're fantastic. Very, very relevant for what's going on. If you want to discover new music in the Christian realm, that's kind of the only place to go.
1: Yeah, and not only do they have amazing music and amazing reviews and just a lot of information about Christian artists, but they are creating with us a brand new devotional product call it IRL Resources. Do you know what that stands for, Brad? I found out. You did? What does it stand for?
2: It stands for in real life. That's exactly right, Brad. Very good. In real life, because a lot of times we have these standard devotionals that you know that, that we see, and, and we thought that it would be kind of cool to use their expertise in Christian music, couple that with actual scriptural and devotional thought that digs you deeper, not only into the song, but incorporates it into real life. And so it's a very vibrant and very awesome resource for families and for pastors.
1: Yeah. And so if you uh, have a preteen or a teen in your home and you're looking for a new devotional to do weekly, we have a digital subscription online at IRLresources.com. It's very inexpensive. The first study is free to check it out. There's nothing to lose. You should go there and see what's the latest thing in Christian devotional. Absolutely. You won't regret it. Well, Robert, that... That was one of those conversations that you knew you had to have. Hard to have, but you didn't want to have it. Yeah, yeah. I think it kind of summarizes how um, how that uh, that goes down in a real relationship. Yeah, I, I think there are people. I don't think I know there are a lot of people who are walking wounded. Yeah, and this is a wound you hide. Yeah, because
2: you don't know you don't know where it fits. Like she said, you know, sexual abuse, you don't understand as a kid what physical affection y- y- it's only with trusted people. And so when that's violated, it's just it it throws everything upside down. And I think one of the key points that she brought up that I think pertains to every aspect of what we were talking about is doing our best as parents, as leaders to foster an environment where we have hard conversations and not just saying to our kids, listen, you can come and talk to me about anything, but actually as she said it, having those hard conversations in front of your kids with your kids so that they know that there is a safe place to go. Cause I know, I know, I know a lot of people that have dealt with this and the primary thing that keeps them from it is just not feeling that there is any safe place to start mm-hmm. to have that conversation.
1: Yeah. And I, You know, one of the challenges uh, as this sort of—this issue begins to emerge and intersect with the church is that, you know, most pastors are male. Yeah. And so if this is a woman who's been abused by a man— It's not a safe place. He's not a safe place. And so pastors can get really offended, really uh, territorial with this, um, and really further damage. Yeah. Yeah. and really, not be a good catalyst for that. So, one of the things is I was thinking is that you need to have uh, women in leadership in a church that are trained and have uh, knowledge, right, of what they're doing in helping uh, guide and, and encourage
2: and making that known to your congregation that yeah. there is that there are people, there's
1: resources, male yep. or
2: female, whoever you would prefer. That there's at least one designated person that that's available yeah I think it's a really important component
1: yeah and i I was listening to this this idea of uh intimacy being violated and and how that scars a person sort of that can't go back there mm-hmm. um and i, I kind of as a representative of the gospel, the church is supposed to be a place where hearts broken hearts are healed, mm-hmm. where the heart is restored and so if this is if this is as big a deal as it appears to be. This could be one of the number one or two issues within a congregation. Churches are going to have to wrestle with this. Mm-hmm. They're going to have to uh, hit this head on. You can't hide this. You can't pretend it doesn't exist in your your church or parish because it does.
2: Yeah, it's true. It's so true. I know that for for me, part of my journey was there's this organization that a friend of mine started called the Samson Society, and um, it exists for men. And I, I just – shameless plug. Sure. No, it's a great thing. Nay Larkin started this. He wrote a book called Pirate and the Samson Monks, but then started this group uh, called Samson Society. And basically the premise is to to create a safe environment for men to come share anything, confess, share things that are hurts, wounds or whatever, and that there's no judgment. And I I, I saw so many men transformed um, because there was a safe place. And so I couldn't agree more. It, it, creating that within your church space, not just with Samson society, but making sure that that's a major part, like you're saying, of understanding the restoration of the heart happens when you embrace these things. One of the things she mentioned, like just kind of not flippantly, but just she said the only way to something like the only way to wholeness or the only way to, to intimacy is through like this issue, not above it, below it, around it, whatever you... You can't avoid this. If you're gonna get to the other side and get to intimacy or wholeness or whatever you wanna call it, Mm -hmm. you have to go through the hard stuff. And um, that's something that we miss sometimes as church and parent. We don't wanna have those hard conversations. We don't wanna, but the only way to the other
1: side is through it. And um, so we need to be there with people in it. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, roughly 25% of all women have had... uh... Some type of sexual abuse by the age of eighteen, according to those statistics, and about fifteen percent of men. Hmm. And so, uh, this, you know, I, she corrected me, and not oversimplifying this is just for women. Yeah, like this is actually affecting both sexes uh, significantly. And you know, the fact that there's there's organizations like Grace.org out there that can help a church. Sort of update their policies and read, redefine how things are going to be done within the the walls of the church to be safe. Right. And and even if nothing's going on, you're doing that so that the people who are attending your congregation feel safe. Right. Exactly. It, it doesn't have to be a situation where this has occurred already. It needs to be a situation where you don't allow it to ever occur. Right. So the preventative approach on this is is a significant factor. And it's
2: great that there are resources that churches
1: can employ. Absolutely. Well, I, I know we could talk a long time, and I know there's a lot of uh, places on the web that you can go, and some of them are, are pretty intense. So this is... Definitely something you wouldn't want to do by yourself. You want to get involved with a professional. You want to get support. You don't want to process something this painful on your own or with just a best friend. Like you need professional support for that. And um, there's no shame in that. No, absolutely not. And uh, you know, as as we were talking before the interview, and I was talking with Nanette, mm-hmm. one of the things that can happen with a sexual abuse survivor is that they can get stuck, and in the role of victim mm. and they, they never go past that and they sort of stagnate in their relationships. And so one of my hopes, one of my prayers as a pastor is for someone who's been in this situation, who's had this experience to move through it, like you said, mm-hmm. and then to be healed right. to allow the Holy spirit to do a work. To not in, stay in their heart. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think you can get stuck in it and it's so painful that you just can't imagine ever getting through it. Well, and this, this is a whole other podcast, but but it starts becoming your
2: identity and, right. You know, that's yeah. the thing that that gets scary is when you when you anchor your your problem, your struggle to your identity, it's part of our
1: story, but it's not our identity. yeah, so we need to move on, so I loved her closing comment. She said, "I've gotten through this." I've received yeah. redemption. I've experienced now wholeness. I've gotten through the process of recovery to the point where I can now minister out of my greatest pain. Now I can become my strength through Christ. And so that is the gospel. Yeah. You know, that is the truth of the gospel. And in many ways that's why you and I do parenting podcasts is because this has been one of our greatest failures in our lives yes. in, the, in the sense that man, I I have to trust God for this. And so I want to encourage listeners, if you feel like you're a failure, you feel guilty, you feel shame, you feel condemnation, none of that came from Christ. None of it. It's Mm. all the devil. So you got to shrug it off, and then you have to move forward in faith and believe that Jesus knew that before he died for you. Right. And you're going to be received with open arms, and there is one true, faithful, and pure relationship that you can have with your Father in heaven, if no one else. So there's hope for the Christian who's uh, working through these issues. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. It was a long uh, interview today, big, heavy subject. If you need to mo- know more or you want to talk privately to find out more information, you can email us at info at brilliantlybraveparenting.com, and or you can reach out to Nanette Kirsch through her uh, website. She has a, bo- uh, a website for her book, denialbook.com, and uh, – She's also available on all the social media outlets. Nanette Kirsch is her name, and she has uh, courageously stepped out to help us all. Awesome. We'll see you here again next week.
0: Be encouraged, parents. You are not alone. In Paul's letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, he writes, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Brilliantly Brave Parenting wants to be an encouragement and support that parents can rely on. Would you consider liking us and sharing us with a friend? As a part of the Tween Gospel Alliance, we are a nonprofit organization dependent on the support of friends like you. Thanks for stopping by. We'll be right here next week. between. Check us out at ishineLive.com.
1: What our kids believe is going to define them for a lifetime. According to George Barna, by the age of 13, what a kid believes is what he'll die believe. It is a fantastic resource that I have used as a pastor in my own home church, and I have been impressed. So, check it out. Check it out.